This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley. Militarization of Politics Must Stop. Season 6, Episode 10. A week has now passed since the violent siege of the U.S. Capitol. Violent protesters descended on the Capitol, breached the perimeter, entered the building, and brought a wave of militarized violence into the seat of the U.S. government. In today's podcast, we'll focus on the increasing tolerance for armed militarization of the U.S. political process and why it has to stop. The cover picture of today's podcast shows a retired United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, Larry Rendell Brock, in combat gear on the floor of the U.S. Senate, holding zip-tie handcuffs and talking with a fellow protester. The picture is emblematic of the increased militarization of our politics and why it has to cease. But first, a sketch of Brock. The 53-year-old Air Force Academy graduate is a retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel and a combat veteran from Afghanistan, and he was pictured wearing a combat helmet, body armor, and the insignia of the 706th Fighter Squadron of the U.S. Air Force. The Texas resident wore a Texas flag overlaid on the skull logo of the Punisher, which is a Marvel comic book character. The Punisher has been adopted by police, army groups, white supremacists, and followers of QAnon. Why was a retired Air Force officer, a combat veteran, sporting a Marvel comic book image? Two family members and a longtime friend said that Brock's political views had grown increasingly radical in recent years. One of them said that he had distanced himself from Brock because he had gotten so extreme. In the days leading up to the siege, he had posted on social media about his plans to attend the Trump rally in Washington to save America and to stop the steal, as they called it. Later in an interview, Brock confirmed that he was in the Senate chamber. While he denied racist views, he did echo Trump's election fraud charges. He said that he felt compelled to attend the rally because of his love for his country. He said he wore tactical gear because he didn't want to get stabbed or hurt, citing Black Lives Matter and Antifa as potential aggressors. The zip tie handcuffs, he said, he picked up off the Senate floor and planned to give them to a guard. In summary, Brock's intense commitment and radicalization that made him an effective fighter pilot had led him to the events at the Capitol, and he believed that liberals and Democrats are a threat to the country. His profile and concerns are common themes found among the increasingly militarized protesters, mostly, but not exclusively, 
on the right. During Donald Trump's term in office, he's shown more sympathy for far-right groups, many of them armed, than any president in recent times. At the same time, his administration has reportedly pressured law enforcement agencies to minimize the threat posed by these organizations as well as militias. Even in the presidential debates, when asked to disavow the far-right Proud Boys, he said, quote, stand down, stand by, unquote. A mixed message at best. And in September, when a radical group, the Wolverine Watchmen, plotted to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and of course, she had defied his call to liberate Michigan, when they did plot, his critique and criticism of that group was hardly full-throated. But intervention by armed groups in American politics is nothing new. Of course, the Ku Klux Klan, Black Panthers, and the Weather Underground have all played violent roles in our political history. So why is the current spate of incidents, and in particular the siege of the Capitol, different from in the past? Potentially, President Trump has opened the door to electoral violence more blatantly, and it might be followed by other politicians doing the same in the future. The summer of 2020 saw violent demonstrators and property destruction by Black Lives Matter and Antifa protesters around the country. And it was largely minimized by candidates Joe Biden and big city mayors in Minneapolis, New York, Seattle, and Portland. Of course, we also had the defund and disband police movements, which the militias fervently opposed, and that again caused the militias to be seen as perhaps allies on the part of law enforcement. But the murder of a Proud Boy follower in Portland by Antifa member Michael Knoller, which was a direct and deadly clash between both of these groups. Knoller, two days later, was subsequently killed by U.S. Marshals. Politicians can actively cultivate relationships with armed groups to advance their agendas, but such cooperation can be hazardous to both sides. Covert militarization of politics occurs when insurgent groups create political wings that can claim that can that can claim themselves as distinct. That happened in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. The IRA had covert links to Sinn Féin, which is the nationalist political party. The opposing Ulster Volunteer Force had links also to the dominant Unionist Party, which is still pro-British. Armed groups in the United States have a broad range of goals going from anarchist to extreme left or right. Those that are anti-government are unlikely to link up with government parties, of course, but others are focused on fighting what they see 
as an expansion of state power and especially left-wing governments in particular. Especially during the COVID lockdowns, where state governors and Democrat governors in particular, we saw wide-scale protest against a loss of liberty in states as diverse as Michigan, California, Pennsylvania, and New York. With the incoming Biden administration, it's likely that government law enforcement agencies and the Homeland Security Department in particular will be pressured to remain neutral and do so immediately. But that said, if armed groups continue to find support in U.S. political parties, however fringe, that will give them the space to recruit and organize. Disavowal of such groups by Democrat and Republican leaders in clear, unequivocal terms, as well as media shunning, would be an important step to rid the public stage of this threat. But in a nation that owns 350 million firearms in private hands, and with a strong history of citizen militias, that may be a tall order. A hankering for the past will also make such changes very hard. But coming back to the Capitol siege, there's no doubt that some people and groups who attended Trump's rally against the Electoral College certification were committed to using violence. After Trump finished his fiery and inciting rhetoric, the crowd headed to the Capitol. Five people died during those protests, and many more were injured. The vice president, the speaker, and the Senate majority leader had to take shelter, and members of Congress had to hide for their own personal safety. What were the motivations and the mentality of these protesters? It was more than a demonstration, that's for sure. It was a siege, but it was hardly a coup, a coup being defined as a potential change of government. Some of those who invaded the Capitol belonged to militias based on their military garb, which is popular with such groups. Patches and symbols of Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, and Three Percenters were in evidence, as well as Trump flags and MAGA caps. They descended on the Capitol complex to stop the steal, as they said. But they did interfere with the certification of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as president and vice president. And that was a serious breach. They actually stopped a constitutional process. Further, they wished to maintain Donald Trump as president for another four years. Of course, that wasn't going to happen, but that apparently was their wish. They, they sought to instill fear in Biden supporters, and they certainly did that, um, certainly based on AOC's comments, Alejandria Ocasio-Cortez, she said that she felt that she was in fear for her life, and that's wrong. Uh, no elected official, no matter what their views are, no matter how much you agree or disagree with them, they're doing their job, they could be doing other things, and no public official should ever feel in fear of their lives. America's militias have a long history 
which stretches back to colonial times. And of course, they played a leading role in the struggle for independence. Even after independence, the militias were seen as an alternative to a standing army. We didn't actually have a standing army early on in our earliest independence days. In 1776, George Washington complained about the behavior of militias and lack of discipline. In 1787, the Constitutional Convention debated placing the militias under national control. And the Second Amendment to the Constitution actually emphasizes the importance of a well-regulated militia, which they say is necessary to the security of a free state. The 1903 Militia Act beefed up militias and gave the federal government oversight power. In 1916, the National Guard, which are organized by states and had evolved from the militias, became part of the army. In 1971, the right-wing Posse Comitatus was set up as a white supremacist and anti-Semitic militia. In 1976, we saw the Sagebrush Rebellion. 1990, in 1990, George Herbert Walker Bush welcomed the New World Order, which to this day has set off conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory of global totalitarian world government. 1992 saw the Ruby Ridge, Idaho standoff and the militia's involvement in that. 1994, we saw the foundation of the Michigan militia, which their raison d'etre was to oppose gun laws, gun control laws. In 1995, the Oklahoma City bombing, and of course, Timothy McBay, the perpetrator of that bombing, who was a militia member, had attended militia meetings, had a major impact on the future of militias. As a result of the Oklahoma City bombing, support for militias plummeted. And in one year, the number of militias in this country fell from 441 to 35 as a result of McVeigh's conviction in the Oklahoma City bombing. 2005, the Minuteman Project to protect the U.S.-Mexican border was set up by a militia. In 2008, with the election of Barack Obama, militia numbers, new militias, jumped from 44 to 127 in one year. They tripled in one year with the election of our first African-American president. In 2009, Oath Keepers was set up in Montana to recruit members of the military, police officers, and first responders. And in 2014, both Clive Bundy in Nevada, as well as in 2016, the Oregon Refuge standoff. There were two standoffs where hundreds of militiamen came to the aid and assistance of Clive Bundy and his ranch operations, as well as the Wildlife Refuge in Oregon. Militias are mostly comprised of young white men in their 20s and 30s who own and train with firearms with the goal of defending themselves. Few women are involved, but those who are involved tend to be very committed ideologically. And there are other women who accompany husbands and boyfriends 
and partners to militia meetings. Scientific American did a lengthy study on militias and their members, and in, they were trying to get to the heart of the mentality, the, the drivers, what drives someone to join a militia. And here are some of the findings from the Scientific American study and poll that they did of the members of a host of the, um, the militias. When asked what they believe has been lost in American society, they reference values such as individual responsibility and self-sufficiency. They cited a sissified society which exists today, as one participant called it. They also criticized government bloat, overtaxation, wasted tax revenues, free things that people get from the government rather than working for them. They also stated that men should take care of their families and not rely on government. Of course, that simpler time in history also reflects a time when men, and white men in particular, had much more power than they have today. And that's it's noteworthy to remember that the rise of the militias today is in part due to the changing demographics here in the United States, and also the fact that men, the role of men in society, is perhaps somewhat less than it was in the past. It's also of note that Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office was a prime target on Capitol Hill last week, and we'll never forget seeing the picture of that fellow from Arkansas sitting at her desk with his feet disrespectfully on her, uh, on her desk. And incidentally, her laptop was actually stolen from her office. The Scientific American study found that most militia members were not racist and very few were overtly sexist. But few of them recognized how their ideal nostalgic society would nullify the gains that have been made by women and minorities over the last five decades. Conspiracy theories have fed into this nostalgia group and members' fears about a lack of security and threats of terrorism. QAnon conspiracies loom large, especially ones that cast Trump as a savior from liberals who promote a variety of evils, they believe, such as Antifa, election fraud, and even pedophilia rings. Trump's tweets and rally speeches have powerfully reinforced such views. But don't expect that nostalgic worldviews of the militia and their allies to go away with Donald Trump exiting power. In fact, the next four years of the Biden administration, the incoming Biden administration, will likely come under attack because the militias and their allies see cultural change as advancing the interest of other demographic uh, groups that are a threat to their own liberty 
ACLED and Militia Watch recently published a joint report, and here's a highlighted summary. ACLED has tracked the activities of 80 militias across the United States during 2020. The vast majority, though not all, the vast majority of the militias are right-wing armed groups. ACLED mapped a subset of the most active mainstream entities, which try to align with U.S. law enforcement namely the Three Percenters, the Oath Keepers, the Lightfoot Militia, the Civilian Defense Force, and the American Contingency. The next tier of groups are street movements that are active in brawls, such as the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer. Finally, highly devolved libertarian groups, which have a history of conflict with the government, and are skeptical of state forces in general, such as the Boogaloo Boys and the People's Rights, are another anti-government group which are out there. Locations and issues where militias are very active and high profile are anti-lockdown protest and perceptions of leftist coup activities. Militia members try to cultivate personal relationships with police and law enforcement, or where they might be a friendly attitude, or where they, they might be able to create a friendly attitude by law enforcement towards militia presence or activity. Also, state capitals and periphery towns are important inflection points for violence generally which goes into the demonstration planning process. Thus, there has been a major realignment of the militia movement from anti-federal government to supporting one candidate and thereby positioning militias alongside one party. There's a greater connection between those groups' identities and politics and the Trump administration. They have tried to appear supportive and assisting law enforcement, placing themselves in public protection roles in parallel with police departments. Again, the militias have generally opposed Black Lives Matter activities, lockdowns, and any other perceived threat to freedom. In closing, this new realignment of militias towards law enforcement and the police and the support of liberty has brought the militias from the fringe into the political realm. And with it, we now have the increased militarization of our politics. Sources for today's podcast include Foreign Affairs, Scientific American, Mother Jones, ACLE Data, and Militia Watch, as well as The New Yorker. This has been the San Francisco Experience and your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting from America's favorite city, 
San Francisco.